Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm your host, Anna Ayler, and if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we've been on a bit of a break for a few months. We're really happy to be back with the podcast and very excited to be recording under our new name, Special Issue, a podcast about society publishing from Wiley. We've got a lot of great new episodes coming your way with more focus on the business and practice of journal publishing, and particularly on society publishers and how Wiley works together in our partnerships with you. Running a journal or several journals together is a really pretty unique and wonderful type of relationship, and we want to focus on that and bring you more stories about society publishing, from branding to business models to bibliometrics and much, much more. Thanks for joining us. So you've probably heard the expression, don't judge a book by its cover, but have you ever heard, don't judge a journal by its cover? In a digital world where most readers are discovering content at the article level, the cover of the journal may not seem as critical as it would have been in the past, but the visual identity of publications is still really powerful, often an important symbol of your society's brand, and as we'll learn about today, of the core values of the society's community. Today we're going to talk to the publishing team for the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health, which Wiley publishes in partnership with the American College of Nurse Midwives, about a significant change they recently made to their journal cover after 40 years with the same image. We wanted to know why they did it and how members, readers, and reviewers reacted to the change. To find out, we're talking to the publishing manager and the journal's editor. Jamie, could you tell us who you are and what you do? I'm Jamie Welgus. I'm a journal publishing manager here at Wiley in the uh, Health Sciences Journals Department. And in that role, I manage a portfolio of journals in health sciences, working together closely with uh, editors and our partner societies in terms of developing and implementing strategy for our titles. So one of the journals that you manage, the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health, recently did a really interesting cover redesign and made some other changes to their style guide. Um, We have the journal's editor here today to talk about all that as well. Francie, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Francie Likas. I am the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health. I've been in this role since the beginning of 2008. I am a nurse midwife and a nurse practitioner myself. I've been a midwife for uh, 19 years, I guess, and and then a nurse practitioner longer than that. So I am no longer in clinical practice, but did practice. Um, clinically for years, and I've also worked in education and research. I have a doctorate in public health, so I kind of have done a lot of different things over the years. Jamie, I want to just start off. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience working with Francie and ACNM over the last few years? Sure. So I've had the pleasure of working with Francie and the Journal and the ACNM for about seven years now, um, and it's just been a delight. Um, And I've learned many things working with Francie over the last years. Um, But something that I've learned that I've especially loved is just learning more about what midwives do um, and that the care they provide for patients is uh, so much more and so much beyond just uh, women, pregnancy, and uh, and birth. So um, something that we talk about quite often is that women really, uh, midwives rather, really care for women and for patients um, throughout their lifespan. So uh, before pregnancy, after pregnancy, um, and also just not related to pregnancy at all. Um, and so as, as I've learned sort of more about the holistic care that midwives provide, um, Francie and I have, have gotten into some great discussions and Francie has made some wonderful changes 
to the journal to be more inclusive of um, of all genders, of um, of patients and of community members who don't conform to gender binaries. So Francie, as the editor for the college's journal, JMWH, how did you first start thinking about that scope of care in relation to your role as the editor? We know there's a long-standing myth that midwives primarily just do pregnancy and birth, and that is not true. We wanted our cover of our journal to reflect that. We had actually had the same cover for our journal for about 40 years. Um, it was a blue cover with a white line drawing of a mother and baby, um, just the faces of the mother and baby. And after a lot of conversation, we decided that our cover did not reflect what Jamie describes accurately as the scope of midwifery practice, which really is throughout the lifespan. Um, we also talked a lot about the evolving understanding of gender and the gender binary and that midwives see patients who don't identify as women. And so we wanted to take that into account. So when we changed our logo, we changed from the mother baby to what I call the three-person logo. It's also a line drawing because we did not want to convey specific races or ethnicities or any of that. We kept it as a line drawing. Um, but it has three people, um, one that looks very female on the left. The center person also looks very female, and she's holding a baby, so that we wanted to you know, keep in mind that midwives do a lot of pregnancy and birth care. And then there's a figure on the right that is more... Um, gender neutral. I think you could see it as being a male woman or someone who doesn't identify as either of those. So um, that's what we did with our cover. I wrote an editorial that goes with it and I say it's what midwifery looks like, um, is that we are taking care of diverse populations and wanted to reflect that. So Francie, I think I remember us having some conversations, um, perhaps at the American Academy of Nursing, if I'm right, over lunch one day about um, language in the journal. I think you were interested at that point in shifting sort of a women-centric language to something more gender neutral. I would say going back to probably 2016-ish, around that time, we started getting a lot of questions of the editors about language and how to use language that was more gender neutral, although I would say I've evolved my thinking, I would probably call it gender inclusive now is a better term for that, but mm -hmm. people were approaching us and saying, you know, not everyone who seeks midwifery care um, is a woman. It's difficult to use inclusive language in terms of just going way, way back to the days of where originally language was always he and his, and then you get into she slash he, his slash her, so some of that is like long-standing, but these newer conversations were about language that was inclusive of folks who identified outside of being women. And I didn't know what the right answer to that was. And so I spent a lot of time reading. There wasn't a lot in healthcare literature, so I ended up reading a lot from more lay sources, newspapers and articles online, trying to figure out how to write about this and talk about it and what were different folks doing. And what we really um, decided to do was something that sort of feels like an antithesis as an editor because I feel like part of my job is to make things super consistent. But we realized that it was hard to land on a totally consistent answer to this. Mm -hmm. um, so we put out there to folks um, sort of different options about wording in terms of um, wording using women versus wording that's more neutral, like person, people, individual. And the inconsistent part for us is that as of now, we're still allowing our authors to choose which of those they want to use as long as they themselves are internally consistent within an article. Um, and we do talk to them about being accurate. So if you have a study where the 
the participants clearly all identified as women, then you need to use that language to talk about that study. But we landed on this place where we said, you can, we're going to respect author's choice, knowing that that means for some period of time we're going to have some inconsistency. And I really like that it's inconsistent and that there is freedom that you're providing to authors because that is sort of gender as well, right? Gender can be inconsistent um, and, and, you know, folks have freedom to express gender, not in any way that they choose. So, Francie, you and your editorial team decided to embrace that inconsistency or variety in language around gender. Are there other reasons it felt important to be explicit about the journal's policy on this? We had started to see that one of the ways that people were doing a workaround of this language was to kind of take people out of it. Instead of saying the woman has contractions, they would say the uterus contracts. Or instead of saying low-risk women, they would say low-risk labors. And that was their way of avoiding having to deal with gender. Mm -hmm. And that felt really against our philosophy in our journal. We've always used what we call people-first language. So we say things like people with diabetes instead of diabetic people. And so that was another thing we felt like we really had to specifically speak to was, like, we don't want to, like, just reduce people to parts and processes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order so that that's the way people are working around this. Because they were struggling and they were trying to figure out how to do it. And we were like, that is definitely not the direction that we want to go. Do you find that you are needing to, um, educate is not the right word, but talk to peer reviewers for the journal, for example, about the shifts that we're talking about in terms of language and scope of care? Or do you think that the reviewers of the journal are generally in line with these shifts as well? I feel like occasionally a reviewer will comment on the language, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, they are, um, like, on board and get what what is happening. And a lot of our reviewers, honestly, they're in academia, and this is a very hot topic among faculty. I mean, faculty were the first people who were coming to me saying, what are we supposed to do about language? Because our students are asking us to be inclusive, but we don't really even know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, we want guidance about what sounds right to you um, as the editor. And I do think the fact that there is conversation about this in our college is helping our viewers. You've changed the journal's cover after 40 years with the same image, and you've introduced this new guidance for authors on language. Have you gotten any feedback from the college's members or from the midwifery community in general about any of this? I honestly have had nothing but positive feedback, and I have to say that I'm a little surprised by that because people were very wedded to the color the cover and they love um the the logo is sort of like this image thing that people love so I was real worried that it was a sacred cow and I was going to be in so much you know hear so much negative feedback about changing it but I literally got an email yesterday and someone said I love how inclusive the new cover is I do think it helped that we didn't change everything about our cover I think having some continuity was a great way for us at least to make that transition and I do think for things like this, writing editorials or podcasts or however folks communicate about their journals, having a lot of clear communication is helpful. In terms of our language shift, you know, truthfully, this has been a real struggle in midwifery um, because I feel like a lot of, and, and I'm going to oversimplify into two groups and I'm going to oversimplify that they're strongly age-related, which is true to a certain extent, but it's not as black and white as I'm going to make it sound, but that's the easiest way to explain it is. Mm-hmm. A lot of midwives, and I would say particularly older midwives, they felt like there's been this long fight to make women the center of care, that mm-hmm. historically people were referred to as patients, they, that patients were dehumanized. And so there's been this strong 
stance and work by midwives to use the word women a lot. And a lot of midwives are very attached to that language. Then on the other sort of end, if you want to make this false dichotomy, there are midwives who feel super strongly about being gender inclusive. Um, they're seeing patients who don't identify as women. They don't want those folks to feel left out of midwifery care. And so they feel really strongly that we need to just change our language entirely. And I feel like interestingly, sort of philosophically and age-wise, I'm in the middle. If that mm-hmm. is a fake, you know, line with two ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like I said when we first made the language shift, some of you this is too far and some of you it's not far enough. Right. And I think by owning all of that up front and, and saying, like, I'm acknowledging that there's a lot of opinions that we're trying to make the right step at this time in the middle of those opinions, we really haven't gotten um, a lot of negative feedback. And, and, in fact, people have said, I think you've really owned, like, what the dilemma is and you're trying to do the best you can within what the current dilemma is. And I feel like more and more people see this in the New York Times. And, I mean, I read something the other day in People Magazine that was really, you know, gender inclusive. So I think the language is shifting as a bigger culture, and that is also helping. I'm curious to you, um, you've worked with us and you've watched this uh, change happen in our journal, but how are other journals handling this? Does this feel like a dilemma with other journals that you're working with? So... I, in my experience with, with other journals, I, I have seen the shift take place, certainly, um, with other titles, but not necessarily to the extent um, that I have with JMWH in terms of, you know, the constant discussion around language and also the recent cover redesign, um, which was a pretty, you know, large sort of visual representative of this type of change that we're talking about. So, Francie, if you were approached um, by another sort of medical journal or healthcare journal editor um, or representative of their society or college faced with the shift or how to translate or be more gender inclusive, what sorts of advice would you give to them in terms of practical steps? Let's see. Well, I think the first thing I would tell them is, like, just number one, like, own that this change is coming. You know, there's a popular t-shirt that says the future is non-binary, and I think mm-hmm. that's true. So they're not going to be able to avoid dealing with this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got to accept that this is something they've got to handle. I think it's helpful to do some reading and try to read from different sources. And there is starting to be a little more in the healthcare literature. I mean, obviously, there's the editorial that I wrote, and I've seen a few other things pop through. But trying to do some reading from different sources to wrap their head around sort of what is the conversation. And it's an evolving conversation, so I think that's also why it's important to literally Google it because as newer things come out, it's important to see how that conversation is changing. Um, I do think that taking a stand in some fashion is important. Like, it's interesting when you were talking about how sort of other journals, it almost sounds like theirs has been more subtle and ours Mm -hmm. has been more... Uh, overt yep. to sort of simplify it. And I think that has honestly been helpful because I think otherwise you leave authors trying to figure out what to do, then they may send you things that aren't what you want. Um, and then I think as you make these decisions and changes, just communication, making sure you are writing about this in editorial, putting it in your style guide, like making it clear what your stand is. So don't just come up with a stand in your head, but make it where it's accessible to people so that they can know what you're doing and where your language is. This is not an easy thing to navigate, and Mm -hmm. it deserves our time and thought, and we're not going to always get it right every time, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't start and we shouldn't try and we shouldn't make the effort because this is what the language needs to be um, going forward.
Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about this. It's obviously an important issue for scholarly communications, particularly in healthcare, and I'm sure we're going to see more and more editors dealing with it. So it's great to share examples for how to do it well. That's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Anna Ayler, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on Society Publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley Societies and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders, all one word. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening. Until next time.